Oh, I feel like the cats are cats are back. Cats in the bag. Bag of cats. Bag cats. <laughs> Meow. Drown them. Two months. Which is really, really great. Hello and welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. Sorry we've been away so long. We've both been moving house separately, but have managed to maintain a one kilometre distance between us here in sunny South London. Mm, in today's episode, we unbox all things film music with two-time Oscar winner and reluctant Top of the Pops performer Anne Dudley. We give a fresh lick of paint to the output of mid-20th century British composer Geoffrey Bush on the 101st anniversary of his birth. Then we take a fresh metre reading of the classical music world in our occasionally acclaimed news quiz. Sam, can you tell me which animal that is playing the xylophone? Well, there were some chirrups and cheeps in there, which I think does give it away that it might be some sort of bird. But I'm going to suggest the zebra. Why? Because, you know when you learn the alphabet as a tiny person, the xylophone is given a really outsized role in comparison to all the other letters. You think you learn A for apple, B for bus. And the xylophone, you think this is going to be one of the 26 most important objects in my life. Similarly, the zebra... He's given a really big role, which it probably doesn't deserve. So I'm going to link those two things together and say, is it a zebra? No, but I <laughs> I liked that answer. That was nice. The audio comes courtesy of Japanese landfowl keeper Dora Kamichi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I thought it might calm your mood before I hit you with the big news story of the week. By what percentage is the government planning to cut funding for quote-unquote high-cost subjects, including music, at higher education HE level in England? Oh, Tim, you are right to play me the chirping birds. Uh, I think it's 50%, isn't it? Yeah. The Office for Students, OFS, which is the independent regulator for HE in England, has opened a 51-page consultation on funding for the academic year 2021-22, based on a statutory guidance letter written by Super League activist and part-time education secretary Gavin Williamson. It reads as follows. The government proposes that the courses that are not among its strategic priorities, covering subjects in music, dance, drama, and performing arts, art and design, media studies, and archaeology, are to be subject to a reduction of 30%. As the Musicians' Union has pointed out, the proposed cuts will be catastrophic for music provision at HE level, massively affecting the financial viability of music courses and training for the next generation of music professionals. Yeah, it's really sad news if this does end up becoming policy. And I can't, I mean, I just can't find the rationale for it. It's kind of like where climate change was a little while ago, where there was this great weight of evidence and we still mm. had to pretend that it there was some debate around it. There's this huge... Every study that's been done 
is very clear that music education benefits the whole education of any child or any young person why would we not want people mm -hmm. to do that we know that the music industries bring in around 5.8 billion to the uk economy we know that's really important mm -hmm. unless it's ideological i don't know what the rationale for that would be and if it is ideological then i don't understand that ideology why would you want to limit those opportunities does it deeply offend uh those of a right-wing inclination that you're gonna have working class people on screen or you're going to have people from diverse backgrounds on a concert platform is that problematic to them because i can't see what other reason it might be mm, yeah you were talking about that uh anecdote that nish kumar made about the beatles earlier weren't you oh yeah. Uh, yeah and uh, well he in a very uh good interview with james o'brien that i'm sure we both recommend he <laughs> points out that all the Beatles went to art college, subsidised art college. Mm -hmm. They left there probably without any debt. And if we want to have the kind of economic impact that having one Beatles can have, you probably have to send a million people to arts college and subsidise them. And that one Beatles, that one genius, will balance the books. If it's an economic question, then we know that that one adds up. So what other reason is there for this I yeah just, i can't yeah. see it i mean the mind also boggles at, at the notice given here the plans are for the next academic year which Whoa. starts in four months and that gives institutions not nearly enough time to plan speaking of the uk government the work of which uk orchestra will be showcased by culture secretary oliver dowden at this week's g7 digital and tech summit i'm sure any of them would be a wonderful advert for the industry they are or international by and large supportive of their local communities and are an area of genuine international expertise that this country possesses <laughs> i have a feeling though it might be bournemouth because i've seen from uh, their new principal horn alex wide who i used to play with on a saturday morning mm. um on his social media that they're up to such things yeah yeah the south coast orchestra has been Broadcasting each Wednesday evening from its home at the Lighthouse and Pool using a specially built stage extension to enable socially distant performances. Amazingly, it, it sold 38,000 digital Oof. tickets in the first lockdown and has grown its audience by nearly 30% during the first six months, is the stats I've got in front of me. Apparently, uh, an excerpt of the orchestra performing Walton's Henry V Suite will be shared during the G7 meetings. Oh, is that the same Henry V where the leader of the nation makes an ill-judged decision regarding our relationship with mainland Europe, gets him and his followers into a sticky spot and then sticks two fingers up to France? Or is that the same Henry V where we're all supposed to be enamoured with the fat, vain, bumbling oaf who lives off money he's borrowed or stolen and has a poor relationship with the truth? I can't imagine why Boris Johnson's government would want us to play that. <laughs> it's so <good>. satire. <laughs> uh, final bit of COVID-themed news. Which legendary Dutch bandmaster has been forced to refund 100,000 tickets for his open-air summer concert series in Maastricht? That's very sad. There's probably only one classical music act that sells 100,000 tickets, yeah. isn't it? Is it Andre Rieu? Yeah, Andre. He signed off his statement with the words, The waltz must go on, and it will go on. <laughs> I don't know what accent that was. <laughs> uh, I hope it does indeed go on, and wish all the best to the lovely Andre. We're fans. We're fans. Great hair, great look. 
Never been to a show, but I'm sure they're wonderful. Better news for one of Holland's European neighbours, however. Which country's president has approved the reopening of cultural spaces with an 800-person indoor audience from May the 19th? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, could it be France? Yeah, you're right. Well done. Uh, the news comes despite a seven-day average of this... I looked this up on Sunday. What's the date? The Monday, as of Monday the 3rd of May, a seven-day average of... 24,000 new COVID cases. That's compared to the UK's 2.2,000. So mm. leave it to listeners to decide whether that's a good idea or not. I don't I genuinely don't know. Sam, can you tell me what the fee is to apply for the Britain Peers Young Artists Programme? Now, now, this is a good news story because it is now nothing, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, bingo. The composer, Joanna Ward, has been holding the organisation to account on Twitter after they initially advertised applications for this year's programme with a £35 entry fee, despite being an official Fair Access Principals partner of the new music organisation Sound and Music. We've added a link to those very principles in the episode description, so have a look. They're designed to act as a quote-unquote code of best practice for running successful, open and inclusive artistic development programs, competitions and awards for composers. And you'll notice the very first of these principles states that they must be free to enter. So Yeah, very well done to Joanna for holding them to the, the standards they claim to yes, believe in. Yeah, indeed. As an antidote to all that serious news, I thought we'd bookend the news quiz with something more amusing. <laughs> in which country has a herd of Hereford cows been treated to weekly cello recitals. You went all My Fair Lady there. A herd of Hereford. Uh, is it... I feel like it's somewhere Scandinavian, but I couldn't put a... Is it Sweden? They feel like they sort of Not cow cellists. quite. It's actually Denmark. The Scandinavian Cello School in Denmark is next door to a cattle farm <laughs> run by Louise Hogard and her husband. A few years back, the school's founder, the British cellist... Jacob Shaw told the couple about Japan's famous Wagyu cows. I'm definitely not saying that right. Which are pampered with music, among other things, in order to produce more tender beef. And that the Haugards installed a speaker in the barn. And now, once a week, they also welcome students from the school to perform to the cows alongside a small human audience. And the Danish culture minister, Joy Morgensen, was among uh, the attendees at a recent concert. And she told her local newspaper she was grateful for the chance to see live music for the first time in six months. Here's a small clip of two students playing Handel's Passacaglia in the barn earlier this year. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, 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 meaningless, purposeful, meaninglessness, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say. Tim, we've had a tip-off of a composer who might be an interesting analysis Mm, Really? Who's tipping and who are we talking about? 
The delightful Rodri, who's also a composer, has been in touch to tell us about his family friend, 20th century British composer and bowtie stalwart, Geoffrey Bush. Any relation to President George W.? No, but we mustn't misunderestimate him either. It was the centenary of his birth last year, which got rather overshadowed by, uh, I don't know, something or other. Mm, can't think what. Tell me more about this Bushman's music. Over his career, this Englishman Bush wrote a great number of songs and several pleasing tonal symphonies that might have felt a little out of step with the mid-20th century fashions. But the score we're taking a look at today is the second movement of his 1943 Divertimento, written for a string orchestra with split violas, an early piece that helped get his compositional career rolling. Delightful. I don't suppose the first performance comes with a charming vignette that connects this piece to the broader period and several noteworthy figures, does it? Amazing, you should ask him. As a young man, he was a chorister at none other than Salisbury Cathedral Ooh. and studied with the underrated sea feverist John Ireland. Mm. Bush lived in Banstead, and just one Ted up the road in Ashted lived the conductor Kathleen Riddick. Hang on. A lady, a woman, conducting... Is everyone not distracted by their raw sexual power? Such were the prevailing opinions of the crass and gammon up until about five minutes ago. But Kathleen Riddick was a pioneer who Bush had met through his time working at the BBC. He sent the score to Riddick and she gave the premiere, quick tangent via a 2004 Vin Diesel reference, to the Chronicles of Kathleen Riddick. She was one of the first female conductors to establish herself in the UK. She founded several of her own ensembles to lead, including the Surrey Phil, later the London Women's Orchestra. She appeared as a guest conductor with the LSO and BBC Symphony Orchestra. A huge budget, huge expectations. Riddick also inspired and nurtured the talents of many other women's careers during this period, including Ruth Gipps, Avril Coleridge-Taylor, Kathleen Merritt and Annie Londonderry. Full disclosure, one of those names isn't a conductor. One of them is the first woman to cycle around the world. So you'll have to Google them all to find out which one is which. Ruth Gipps, Avril Coleridge-Taylor, Kathleen Merritt, Annie Londonderry. Back to the Bushman. The premiere of the Divertimento was given at Wigmore Hall, but unfortunately it was played the day after a cataclysmic snowstorm. Oh no! Were there any audience members there? Four. Oh dear. Yes, and Bush said that three of the four were composers having their pieces performed, including him. The fourth was the Times' music critic. And 25% of the audience being there on free tickets. That seems about right, doesn't it? Bush braced for a terrible write-up from the Times' Frank Hawes, but when the review came in, it was glowing. Bush said it made him realise that... The London concert world, as reported in the press, and the world of ordinary, perhaps I should say real, music-making, belong to two quite separate dimensions. On point, Geoffrey. Shall we hear the notes that got Kathleen Riddick and Frank Hawes so excited? Mm, this is the second movement from Geoffrey Bush's Divertimento for Strings.
A joyous side note to the life of Jeffrey Bush is that alongside working as a composer, performer, scholar, and broadcaster, he published a crime novel with his fellow composer Bruce Montgomery, which was titled Who Killed Baker? Superb. I thought as a tribute to Jeffrey's detective skills, we could interrogate his piece, hunting the clues to its success. It's time for another episode of our perhaps only once previously occurring segment, Behind Bars. AC12 interview with Divertimento for Strings by Jeffrey Bush, present DC Al Coda and DS Alfine. If you listen to the short audio file, you will hear evidence of a rhythm similar to that of the Pavan, a common duple meter dance from the 16th century. However, unlike a Pavan, whose rhythms sound like example 42, Timbuktu. A Pavan, A Pavan, A Pavan. Your rhythm fluctuates between an extended 5-4 version. Example, 44, I want more. Not a pavan. Not a pavan. Not a pavan. And a further extension into a 6-beat version. Still not a pavan. Still not a pavan. Was this a deliberate effort to throw listeners off the metrical scent? No, no, everyone was doing it. Britain's Saraband from the Simple Symphony, Vaughan Williams on Thomas Tallis. It's all slight quirks on the habits of that previous peak era of British musical delight, the Tudor period. Ah, so you admit that you thought the 20th century represented something of classical music resurgence on this isle previously dismissed as a land without music? I was just trying to write a nice divertimento. A likely story. DCL Coda, continue. Please turn your attention to the monothematic, monomaniacal nature of the melody. Isn't it true that the initial melody is made up of repetitions of this motif? Played in a descending sequence. Each time it returns, the idea has taken a downward step, like some other crime investigative television we shan't mention. Well, yes. Right. And the second phrase, the melodic material in that is related to the first. Not just related, sir. Only a single interval has changed from this... ...to this. It's gone from a minor third to a fourth man. What do you make of this? Who is the fourth man? I don't understand. I'm so sorry. It's essentially the same descending sequence. We hear it four times as well. Surely you can see it's an obsessive repetition of a motif building. Is that or is that not the case? It is. Following these close relations, the final melodic component is simply a repetition of that initial sequence, but now each repetition of the melody is played by different instruments in different octaves. 
You'll hear this in clip 36, Pick and Mix. Jesus, Mary and Joseph and the wee donkey. Can't we just move this melody along before it drives us all round the bloody bend? Imagine someone building a work of art out of repetitions of a very familiar, catchy phrase. Bent coppers. Bent coppers. You know, if I see a bent copper... Bent coppers. Bent copper for the 21st century. Bent coppers. Mother of God. My melody does go round and round, for sure, but that's a sort of pastiche of the sentimentality of romanticism. Surely you can see that from the harmonic progression. Don't call me Shirley, son, or you'll be seeing a harmonic progression from the sharp end. DS Alcoda, will you take us back to the top? This faux taxi driver quasi jazz club harmonic progression involves plenty of sultry romanticism. We've isolated those chords in example 33 The Old Man and the Sea. These chords underscore the descending sequences, creating a sentimental mood as described. But then the final cadence is counterintuitive, uplifting, and suggests an additional layer of meaning and depth. See example 21 in your files, Iguanodon. So, what I've got here is a piece that at first glance appears to be a simple 20th century interpretation of a 16th century dance comparable to Holst's Paul Suite, but upon closer inspection belies humour, parody and introspection. Add in the fact we've got odd length, seven bar phrases all over the place, an additional viola part that frequently sits above the second violins blurring, nay camouflaging the sound. I think we got something well worth listening to here. There may even be some signs of OCG activity. Original creative genius? Perhaps so. Now we're sucking on diesel. Huge expectations. Interview terminated. You got to pick a pocket or two. The Aquarium from Camille Saint-Saëns' The Carnival of the Animals, written in 1886. Alan Menken's Magic Rose theme from Beauty and the Beast, released in 1991. How does how does that sound? Oh, we're poets, aren't we? The bit between us, the counting, and that—that that, I think that's going to be great. You haven't got my video. 
I haven't got your video, but I don't especially need your video. Ah, there we go. Hey, nice to see you. Oh, I'm not Roger. <laughs> Roger. Yes, what? Honestly. Oh, <laughs> renaming me. Just say hello to Sam. Where is he? Hi, Sam. You all right? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Nice to all see right. you. Right, he's going to make me some coffee yeah. and everything will be fine. Excellent. Oh, I've got my cup of tea ready to go. Um, hey, well, good morning and thank you so much for doing this. Usually at the top of an interview, the person doing my job tries to introduce the guest and give us a quick summary of their career. And I confess I've been struggling to throw a neat blanket over the great variety of things that you've been <laughs> cracking on with. So here's my best effort, that you're a, a founding member of the synth-pop innovators Art of Noise, Oscar-winning composer on film scores, including the full Monty, Mamma Mia and Les Mis, who's also composed for much-loved TV shows like Jeeves and Worcester and Poldark, and worked with, amongst others, Bill Bailey, Stephen Fry and Terry Jones to create stage shows, put together projects for everyone from Lang Lang to the BBC Concert Orchestra, and are you still running those nice concerts in the Village Hall? We are indeed. The, the uh, Sarat Festival of Music, we didn't, we didn't have any concerts last year, of course, but as we speak, we are anxiously trying to um, confirm our artists for this year. I had a great time watching O Duo there a couple of years ago. That was a really fun one. My first proper question, I suppose, is, is it a deliberate effort to stay hard to define and to cultivate all these different avenues, or has it just turned out that way? Um, well, I keep trying to find something that I'm any good at, really, Sam. So <laughs> <laughs> I keep trying different things. No, it's just um, it's just the way it is, I suppose. Um, I've never sort of been one for seeing barriers between different types of music. You know, mm. I'm, I'm interested in all sorts of music. I don't sort of like to put music in categories like classical or jazz or whatever, because I think it's all it's all music. And if it's good, it's good. Mm, yeah, you and Duke Ellington. Uh, one thing that I'm trying, I've struggled to project onto your IMDb page is if there's a governing criteria, how do you decide which projects to take on? Well, it starts off which ones come along. I mean, mm. I said yes to everything at first because <laughs> everybody always does. And now it's things which I think I can be good at. I think I can, the things that I think would be my thing, you know, I'm mm. sort of the slight luxury of being able to say no to things nowadays yeah. if I think that it's not really something that that would interest me and have you grown an ability to pick a winner do you think no not at all I can <laughs> happily read a script and have no idea if it's any good or not um, having said that when I read Poldark strangely mm. enough I, I was sent I think three scripts the first three scripts and I couldn't put them down because I thought the the strength of the narrative was so gripping and mm. I thought it was terrific and but but of course until you see the whole picture until you see the casting and the editing and the production design and the, the sort of pacing of the thing you can't really tell from a script whether it's going to really work or not mm. um, and then something magically sometimes comes together with the acting the casting the directing and everything in it and it just becomes something wonderful and sometimes you can read a script and think this is wonderful this is great I think this is going to be a huge hit and then somehow it isn't and mm. um, if I knew what the actual answer to to that was um, I'd probably make a fortune yeah <laughs> I mean I'm, everybody makes films and 
TV in, in in the expectation that it's going to be absolutely great. You have to really you have to believe in it because it's such hard work. You know, you have to have something to keep you going. I was wondering because you have done quite a lot of being funny with music and just what what do you try and emphasize or draw on when that's the task with Jeeves and Worcester um, the Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie thing it was um, set in the 1920s late 1920s and it's sort of based around a an English dance bandy style mm. so it's not really the very hip American style jazz of Duke Ellington and, and that lot at the time. It's the slightly yeah. more genteel English dance band interpretation of it. Bands mm. like Jack Hilton and Ambrose, which nobody really seems to ever know anything about now, but they're really very, very charming mm. and just a little bit straight. And um, and what I came up with was, was very sort of Per perky rhythm and I used the rhythm a lot in the music the the rhythm would become a sort of punctuation to parts mm. of the dialogue and then the tune I found a million ways of doing it but the comedy itself I never really wanted to say this is funny mm. because it it was funny enough really and when the music's trying to tell you this is funny <laughs> by having very sort of quirky bassoons or pizzicato strings, there's usually something slightly wrong. Mm. The comedic peak for me in your work is the Bill Bailey Remarkable Guide to the Orchestra. And I show it to kids in school every year and they love it. And I'm on about my 350th viewing and I still love it. How how was it putting that together with him? Because, I mean, he's a serious musician as well, isn't he? Yeah, uh, well, Bill's a delight, a, a consummate musician as mm. well. And he can see something in music that, and he can sort of put his finger on what it is that's very funny about it. I mean, my favourite bit, which always makes me laugh, is the, the bass clarinet when, <laughs> when mm. the villains go into the uh, hideaway. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen the, the video, this makes no sense. But <laughs> We'll He's just we'll so right, um, and we spent we spent months really just sort of listening to various bits of film music, various bits of TV music, and trying to analyse why certain instruments had certain characteristics, and mm. why the oboe sounds so lovely in English pastoral, and really, and is a lovely version of the Emmerdale Farm theme, and and I suppose the favourite bit is the bassoons being sort of mischievous <laughs> and uh, although you think they're sort of trundling away at the bottom of the orchestra they're really trying to smuggle in Bee Gees tunes yeah yeah I've got to say if you're 11 that goes flying over your head and in fact they love the swan that's their favorite bit the physical comedy of everyone oh, running yeah, around man. and just ringing bells perform it on I suppose bells. for the 11 12 year olds a lot of the references to 70s and 80s music mm. They, they laugh, but they they just sort of don't know why. I think the shorthand of things like that villain cue are so ingrained in what... Uh, it's like the musical vernacular of what they're consuming that they get it. But if it's if it's specifically the Bee Gees, there's, 
Okay. No, who, who are they? <laughs> they're not quite aware of the Bee Gees. There's, uh, it's well, there's a, a lack in their cultural education, Sam, which I think you are obliged to fill, you know? Absolutely. There's the next two lessons afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Were you able to predict his uh, Strictly success, which does feel like a million years ago now, although it was only the autumn, wasn't it? Well, I did write to him after the first week and um, and I said, I think you're going to go all the way, Bill. <laughs> the reason is because Bill is so focused. Mm. He, would take, he would take it completely seriously and he would give it completely 100%. And... He, as he proved, he did. Mm. And um, that sequence he did to the rapper's delight was just joyful, really, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and, and I'm so glad that he won because he just sort of proved the power of determination, really, because he probably wasn't the most gifted dancer, but he really put his heart and soul into it and sort of achieved something incredible, I think. Yeah, I remember saying to my folks, I was like... Uh, he knows how to practice. Anyone who can play the piano like that knows how to practice in a constructive way. Exactly. And if you can do that, then that's going to be a big part of the battle because you've already got that ingrained in you as a sort of, yeah, I've got to turn up and I've got to do it 25 times badly and then 25 times medium. And then and that kind of process he's and familiar with. And I've got to with. do it until it never goes wrong. Yeah, oh, yeah, quite. Well, so, uh, so this, this proves to us how a musical education is something that every child should have because it'll teach you skills that you can use in every aspect of life. Yeah, on prime time BBC television and there is no <laughs> no higher goal. I'd actually heard that you'd predicted he, he was going to win right at the beginning. I wondered if you had a secret spoiler in that, but that's good. Do you get spoilers on, on, a, on a series or something? What, how far in advance of Poldark are you working? Do you get the whole season? Do you get a a couple of scripts because I always wondered how do you write the music for the first episode and think oh this character is going to be important and then actually they're, they're deceased by halfway through the next one and <laughs> you know you've, you've set up some great harmonic progression that's going to resolve in episode nine well the well there's two two things really don't start with episode one and uh, in Poldark, we started with episode three, actually, right. because the production company was experienced enough to know that things settle down. Hmm. You might make a few mistakes when you first start off, but so don't do it on episode one, which is the one that gets all the attention. So actually do your post-production on episode three. So then by the time you get to episode one, you've, you've got a few ideas under your belt. The second thing is I, I tend to resist, if I can, doing themes for characters because it's a hiding to nowhere really uh, because as you say the character might die and damn it mm. you've lost your best tune so I like to do themes and I worked it out on Poldark and then it's something that I worked out after I was doing it and then I thought oh, I see that's what I'm doing themes for things themes for abstract ideas so theme a theme for resilience say Hmm. A theme for um, unrequited love, a theme, I don't know, even the mine, the mine actually, the Cornish mines had hmm. a theme. So, um, and, and then you see you've got a little bit more scope to it, but characters, much more tricky, because your characters aren't going to stay the same through a long series, they're going to go through lots of developments. You might have a little sort of motif that hmm. you associate with a character, 
But what are you going to do when you've got character one and character two in the same scene mm -hmm. and then character three comes in? It, it's just, you're not, you're not writing a fugue, you know, just just get a grip, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when it comes to that starting a new project phase, have you got any particular spurs or habits that you go to to try and write something specific for this project rather than just another lovely score um i think it's very helpful to have quite a lot of thinking time mm. um time when you're not actually trying to think about themes but you're just sort of thinking about the general character of the project and doing some general listening and seeing if there's something that might i recently did another film with paul verhoven which was benedetta which is going to uh, be released at the Cannes Film Festival this year. And uh, it's based in a nunnery in, um, well, I suppose, the 1500. Mm. And although it's not strictly speaking quite the right timescale, um, the, the filmmakers found quite a lot of Hildegard de Bingen. Ah, uh, yeah, real. Beautiful, beautiful um, female voices monophonic ever so simple but somehow magical mm. and just that simplicity was quite an interesting thing to think about you know um, mm. and that sort of helped me and I had sort of quite a few weeks to think about it and listen to quite a lot of Hildegard Bingham before before I had to start working on it and so that sort of thing can be can be quite inspiring just letting it permeate in for a while and then firming it in getting into the world of yeah where you need to be so it's not a case of saving up good themes for the right project to come along and well, i uh, don't do that no um there's not a cupboard full of like you're just waiting for a, a space no, drama <laughs> no actually i don't <laughs> i don't know if that would be you'd probably end up with several cupboards full and you'd never ever use them Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. In this last year, we've kind of all been forced to do quite a lot of telly and film watching, which is really lovely and great, but has that been a relaxation for you? Can you turn that professional ear off when you're watching, you know, a nice series on the telly in the evening yes generally unless i really hate the music and right me. i mean there is a certain cliched way that most uh documentaries use um and i'm, I'm sure you're just as aware of it as as i am there's far too much music mm. there's music behind the talking heads and any time that something vaguely complicated comes on they're still putting on the quirky little music like, you know, you couldn't possibly take <laughs> this in because you're too stupid unless we give this you this very lightweight, stupid music. So that annoys me. <laughs> yeah. But in general, yes, I'm quite happy to, to sit down and um, enjoy things like The Serpent was brilliant, mm. I thought. Uh, yeah. Are there any peers or, I mean, you mentioned Jerry Goldsmith uh, before, sort of who you find real inspiration and think 
are there doing a, a brilliant job? Um, yeah, there's a few people who never do anything bad and always do good things. Um, James Newton Howard is an underrated mm. poser. I mean, he had got an Oscar nomination this year for News of the World, mm. which was a great score, lovely score, enjoyed it yeah. a lot. Uh, he never seems to win these Oscars, <laughs> but he he always does brilliant stuff, whether it's uh, action movies or much more sort of dramatic movies like the Tom Hanks thing. He's he's one to watch. Yeah, that would be nice to seek him out. Um, I'm going to attempt a real interviewer tightrope here and, and go from uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who is one of my also absolute favourite film and TV composers. He wrote a Star Trek theme, so he's always in my, my good books. And he also did The Omen, which has all those satanic hymns in, which feel very much to me like the Symphony of Psalms uh, from Stravinsky. And I reckon that there's a sneaky link to Stravinsky and you as well via the, uh, is it the Fairlight Music Computer and Orc 5? You think one of those Orc stabs is Stravinsky, do you? I think it's from the Firebird. I'm not dun, sure. Dun. You can't blame me for it. No. <laughs> One of their sort of might have been a preset. Yeah, I bet. Could you tell us a little bit about what that magical machine did, or does it still do? Is it still alive? I'm not sure. Well, the Fairlight was this great big computery music instrument. It was pretty large, and it looked like a sort mm. of washing machine, and it cost as much as a car well no it cost as much as several cars actually and um, in the 80s i was working with trevor horn who was a very successful music producer and had a lot of money and bought one and he said this is going to change the world look you mm. can sample anything in it mm. and play it back on a keyboard and so we started sampling voices and then sampling cars starting and sampling weird doors slamming and the strange sound that you used to get when you put a videotape into a video machine. Mm. Sure enough, you could then mm. <laughs> not only play it on a keyboard and so you could change the pitches of it and start to make music out of it. Um, it had a sequencer in it, a fairly crude sequencer. So you could begin to build up rhythm tracks based on your doors slamming and your video machines and your tennis, uh, table tennis games. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun with it and we had no idea that any of what we were messing about with would ever be successful or anybody else would be interested in it. I always say that I used to do the sort of um, the musical bits and then I'd go home and the other guys would smoke a lot of dope at night and put on these hip hop beats and I'd come back in the morning and find my sort of experimental music concrete <laughs> turned into a sort of hip hop track. But I, I was um, sensible enough to realise that there was probably a bit more marketable stuff in the hip hop track than there was in my yeah john cage experimentalism <laughs> well you know maybe cage for the masses is just down the line who knows but this was part of the uh art of noise and the i mean became a pop star you just like <laughs> you ended up on top of the pops how was that 
Was that an environment you were comfortable in? Was that a... the worst experience of my life? You know, most oh, no. people think, oh my God, I'm going to be on top of Pops. It's going to be brilliant. Well, we had no idea. We had absolutely no idea. Because mm. um, that wasn't the idea, really. I mean, we weren't really pop stars. Uh, there was a lot of, in the 80s, there was a lot of pop stars who had funny hairdos and extreme makeup and funny clothes. Mm. And we released um pictures of spanners for our publicity photographs and very cool and things well that is pretty cool until they say to you well you're number eight in the charts you're going to go on top of the pops <laughs> and you think well actually we don't really do anything we just stand behind keyboards and, blah, blah, blah. Mm. and um and the record company was a bit blasé about it and said oh you know you'll, you'll think of something <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we turned up and um, we thought, well, they'd have thought of something. And then the director said, well, look, we're just going to play the track. Um, we're not quite sure what to do. We'll um, you do it and then we'll sort of work out what to do afterwards. I thought, oh, shit, we don't know what to do. And I mean, there'd been so many edits of this track anyway. Frankly, I, I wasn't even sure of the structure of the track. You know, I didn't know where which bit came where by the time it got released as a single. So we sort of stood behind these keyboards, not doing very much. And then there was this great conflab after this sort of disastrous rehearsal. And the directors were sort of all getting around over that. And they sort of saved our bacon by um, interspersing our non-performance with bits of the video luckily. right yeah so we sort of got away with it but didn't feel very comfortable to be honest sam it wasn't it wasn't the highlight of my of my 20s i must <laughs> which is looking back on it was a great shame because top of a pops was an iconic program mm. that people would have given their right arm to have been on because it was in those days you know you've got to again back in the stone ages there were only three or four channels and mm. top of the pops on thursdays was was an absolute diary date anybody yeah. vaguely interested in music always watched top of the pops on a thursday it's hard to imagine how important that was in promoting a record yeah no, and it's obviously had a lasting influence that um era of music in fact the art of noise i have dug up are supposedly the third most sampled artist of all time so congratulations on that have you got any guesses about the who the two people above you are uh, pub, pub quiz question there you go. i did know i did know this i know one of them is james brown oh yeah he's number one i think everyone wants a sort of yeah or a hit me or something to yeah so i think we're in great company there and i cannot <laughs> remember who, who would be number two then it's craft work craft work yeah i don't know what everyone's nicking from them but apparently people are nicking things well not nicking sampling we're number um, three are we mm. yeah oh, well it's a good club to be in isn't it's it it's a good club to be in and it feels somehow like you've gone whole circle from sampling things to them becoming the sampled thing yeah or... it's weird isn't it pop will eat itself <laughs> yeah the it snake is, is eating its tail but what um, are they going to sample in 20 years time that's what hmm yeah, I'm, I'm not quite as good at the uh, prediction business as you are. And, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to you. Oh, Tina, here I go again, buying books faster than I read them. Can I um, 
ask you about some of these films that you've done, things like Mamma Mia and Les Mis, and actually um, The Full Monty, and everyone's talking about Jamie coming up in the future, where you're occupying this role of writing the music between, or writing the score that carries you between songs that everyone already knows. And are you still Mm. doing, trying not to dance on top of the pops at that point because it, it feels like if you do your job very well it's almost invisible and if you're so, if everyone suddenly becomes very aware of it maybe or you know changes in tone actually you've somehow gone off piste yeah exactly i mean um mamma mia here we go again yeah. was a case in point um there's the songs obviously you know about the songs mm. you know the songs are coming up But there's the bits between the songs and there's getting into the songs, which some music can really help. Um, It's much better if somebody bursts into song, if you've prepared the groundwork, if you see Mm. what I mean. So my score will be like an extended intro to somebody suddenly coming into song. And harmonically, and the language of that piece of score has to, as you say, completely relate to the uh, song that's coming up. If I'm coming from a much more complicated or sophisticated musical language, it's going to jar. So the secret is to make it all sound as one. So, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the score pieces in Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again are actually based on ABBA songs. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's such a huge range of ABBA songs to, to choose from um, that it's, you know, you've got so much material to choose from that you're, you're not going to sort of run out of ideas. No, every motif is a, a little hook, isn't it? I mean, there's you only need a little hint of something. You, and you then just it's... need a hint, but it, it sort of, it, then, it, then it all sounds as it should do. So you have mm. to sort of put away your ego and... Mm. Um, be a sort of be a member of ABBA <laughs> for a little while because you know it, it's nobody's going to say go go away from Mamma Mia and say wow the songs were crap but the score was great. I mean, come on, let's get yeah. a grip here <laughs> you know the score has to serve the songs I found I mean, what you said there oh, sorry, sorry. I, was, I was just going to say I was very lucky in Mamma Mia here we go again in that Benny from ABBA mm. is a very nice person very helps great collaborator loves being in the studio loves making these films loves music and was happy as anything to share ideas and to be very generous and um you know it was just a joy really to work on yeah i just found that really interesting what you said about ego because it's something that i think about a fair bit at the moment it's sort of what is the What's the constructive place for ego for a creative person? Because you've you've got to have some. If someone says, "Can you score this blockbuster film?" You've got to be like, "Yeah, actually, I, I can do that." But also, being so, if you're totally free of ego, then you're not gonna maybe take on the project. And but then if you teeter too much the other way, then you're gonna dominate, and it's not gonna be a constructive process. And no one's gonna want to work with you anyway. So I mean. Have you? Yeah. Do you walk that line? Yeah, it is a balance because if you haven't got any self-belief, you're not going to, you're not going to get anywhere. 
really. Mm. You have to believe, yes, I can do this. And, you know, as creative people, we're all plagued with self-doubt all the bloody time, really. <laughs> and, you know, we all get setbacks and there's times when you, you present your demos and somebody comes back and says, oh, no, it's not right at all. And you just pick yourself up dust yourself down and start all over again and that has to be the way that you do it else you lose a job you know and mm. there have been times when you know it's been very difficult and uh, there has been times when I've just walked away and I've thought I can't do this but in general because it's music there is no right or wrong answer um, we're not trying to find the answer to a mathematical formula Mm. So there's a whole range of solutions to any particular to any particular problem. And if you have a good relationship with the people that you're working with, then you should work together to find a solution. Mm. I thought that your um, acceptance speech at the Oscars, which if uh, our listeners haven't seen it, they should just stick into Google because um, it's a wonderful moment of that kind of balance of it feels like you, you get up there, you thank the musicians i think that's basically the uh, use sort of uh, thanks very much to the producers thanks very much to the musicians for bringing it to life cheers and it's kind of just um that but it's that thing of like you don't there's no bursting into tears or like oh my goodness i never expected this it's like we did some good work thanks very much for the people who did it see you next time <laughs> it's just like, it's, it feels to me like you in that moment you're very much walking that line of balance but it must have yeah, felt like quite a surreal thing because i met one of the because there's an orchestra at, at the, the oscars and um i met one of the musicians who'd been in the orchestra and he said you know you're one of the the only composers who's ever thanked the musicians wow and, and he said he really appreciated that and i thought crikey Without the musicians, absolutely. <laughs> no, if you can't thank your musicians, I mean, really, get a grip. <laughs> but uh, and can you tell us a little bit about everyone's talking about Jamie, which I know has is, is oh, been delayed yes, a little bit and is in the pipeline. Uh, yeah. I know we've got uh, Sarah Lancashire and yeah, Richard E. Grant. Say, go and see it because it'll cheer you up immensely. Do you know the Do you know the stage show? Have you seen it? I haven't seen the stage. I know the the story upon which it's based but i don't know the it's um, a very simple story um not much really in the story a boy wants to go to his prom dressed in drag hmm. uh, he wants to be a drag queen really and um the school says no you can't you can't do that you can't do that and um that's the story really but it's so much more than that because it's the songs are brilliant, actually. The songs mm. are written by Dan Gillespie Sells. They're lovely, sort of proper pop songs with great tunes, great lyrics. It's hilariously funny. The dancing is amazing in it. It's mm. um, choreographed by Katie Price, who is just amazing. The kids are great in it. Um, it's a bit like um, Matilda, you, you know, yeah. the, the children have but very big roles to play in it and they're really good. And I just think it's sort of um, one of those uplifting movies that I hope will do well. Hey, well, uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll see you back on that stage again next year. Who knows? Fingers crossed, maybe with an audience. Um, oh, thanks, Anne, so much for uh, giving us so much of your time. And um, yeah, everyone should go and see Be Benedetta. 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 
for your fix of monks and then uh, on to uh, everybody's talking about Jamie after that all right lovely to talk to you Finish. before we leave you we've got a few thank yous firstly a big thank you to Rodri mm. for continuing to promote the legacy of Jeffrey Bush Sam how about you a uh, big thank you to Anne Dudley obviously for just being so modest and cool and a thank you to Ange Dudley as well for helping sort that one out for me Tim are there any anniversaries or birthdays that we should be aware of mm, I've got a bit of a list Go Milton Babbitt and Debbie Wiseman both have birthdays on Monday the 10th. So send Debbie a tweet. Tuesday the 11th, Irving Berlin, William Grant Still. A couple of big birthdays there. Wednesday the 12th, Massenet and Foray. Always good to have a rhyming birthday, I think. Mm-hmm. And a French rhyming birthday. Oh. Thursday the 13th, Arthur Sullivan. Friday the 14th, Lou Harrison which is a date he shares with Eric Morecambe, Kate Blanchett, Mark Zuckerberg, Sophia Coppola, Ollie Mers, and The Spectator's Fraser Nelson. What a diverse range of views they all will have, <laughs> I'm sure, if we get them together. Also, if you haven't already, check out the world premiere of Mark Simpson's Violin Concerto with Nicola Benedetti and the LSO. It's free to view this week on Marquee TV at the link in the episode notes. Every day I step out of the path of a man named J.S. Bach. He's always bumping us over, you see. I didn't like it, not one bit. Made me feel like a piece of dirt till a thought occurred to me. Today you would ask Bach to step aside? Yes! Please move, Mr. Bach. You're in my way. No. Please? No. I always move for you. I wouldn't say that, but go on. Oh, you're being a big meanie. Yeah, I have no opinion. That really hurts my feelings. I mean, I don't, are you telling me or are you asking? I have a little cry now. I can't really address that. It's an absurd notion. <laughs> no. Mother of God. Mo- mother of God. Mother of God. Hi. 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 Mother of God. That's the one.